0: Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. From the Milton Metz Studio in the Radio TV Building at Indiana University, I'm Bob Salzberg. Welcome to Noon Edition. Our co-host, Sarah Whitmire, is also here with me today, and we're going to be talking about climate change. Uh, Scientists agree that the Earth is undergoing major shifts in climate as a result of greenhouse greenhouse gas emissions, but how will Indiana fare as the climate changes? We hear a lot about the coasts and and the northern parts and, and the southern parts, but how about Indiana? We're going to talk this week. Uh, on Noon Edition with experts about what the future of climate change holds for Hoosiers. This topic comes to us from listener David Parsons of Bloomington. He submitted a question to WFIU's Inquire Indiana project, asking us to look into the extensive research of the Purdue Climate Change Research Center. And joining us from that center is Jeff Dukes, a professor of forestry and natural resources and biological sciences. He's the director of the Purdue Climate Change Research Center. Also, Matt Hauser, Midwestern Indiana Community Studies Fellow with the Environmental Resilience Institute, which is one of, uh, part of one of Indiana's grand challenges in studying the effects of climate change. And also joining us by phone is Jesse Carbanda. He's the Executive Director of the Hoosier Environmental Council. If you want to join us today, you can uh, follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. You can give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington. Or toll-free, 1-877-285-9348. So thanks for being here with us today. Uh, Jeff and Matt are here in the studio. Jesse is joining us by phone. Jesse's been a guest before. You two guys are here for the first time. Mm-hmm. It's but good I, to be here. Glad to have you. So uh, our questioner, David Parsons, wanted to know about the research that you you've done. So I don't want you to just spend the next hour just citing all the research, but if you want to pick out, you know, one piece of something that you found, and also you can just talk about what the Climate Change Research Center is.
1: Sure, yeah. We're a group of uh, 91 faculty at Purdue across 27 departments, so super, super broad, Um, and our role is to help all those faculty find each other across all those departments so that we can do collaborative research, because really this is an interdisciplinary problem that uh people need need help networking if we 're going to tackle it in a in a su- successful way um, and you know n- another one of our roles is to reach out and make sure that the the information that we 're generating in that center, the research that we 're doing reaches the public or reaches the the people who need it and uh, and so that 's what we 're doing with this Indiana climate change impact assessment that we 're working on we're trying to basically coordinate researchers not just at Purdue but around the whole state um, and basically spread the word of what we're expecting to happen in the state. We're, we're depending on many researchers uh, at Notre Dame, at IUPUI, here at IU. Um, and, and we've got a bunch of, uh, I think, interesting and important findings for, for the state to address.
0: We'll get to the findings uh, in a little bit, but I want to ask Matt Hauser about the Environmental Resilience Institute and what that's all about.
2: Sure. So the Environmental Resilience Institute, as you mentioned, comes out of Indiana's Grand Challenge Program. And it was funded to essentially produce research and practical results and engagement that will help the Hoosiers uh, prepare for environmental change. We know from wonderful reports uh, coming out of Purdue and and other ones that are collaborative across the Midwest that there'll be a lot of devastating impacts of climate change in the near future. Mm -hmm. And our role is just to ensure that we can minimize those in a way that Improve uh, outcomes for Hoosiers and reduce further emissions at the same time. Mm -hmm. So Jesse, you've been working on
0: this uh, with the uh, Hoosier Environmental Council for quite a long time. What's your uh, reaction to the university's um, role and to them jumping into this at this
3: point? Well, Bob, I think it's uh, it's really welcome news because uh, I think that uh, climate change is often seen as a far-flung problem and I think that Uh, When lawmakers and mayors and county commissioners uh, can be aware that, uh, you know, extreme flooding and more frequent flooding uh, is going to affect Indiana, they're going to pay more attention. And I I think that uh, uh, it's so important that uh, that research be disseminated to those decision makers and, again, in a way that is very customized for them to appreciate just how local uh, level this this impact is going to be.
4: In Indiana, I'm curious, and perhaps this is a question best for you, Jeff, if you're going out and meeting with those stakeholders, but are there issues in Indiana with people believing climate change? I know nationally there are, but I'm wondering, I guess, is it worse felt in Indiana?
1: Yeah, I don't know. You know, I don't have a cross-section of everybody in the state, but um, certainly there are people who are not uh, interested in um, talking about the causes of climate change. I think many people you know, whatever they're, they're thinking on the matter are on board, understand that, that, you know, thermometers have recorded that the climates have already changed um, and that they're projected to change further in that direction. There's differences among audiences in terms of whether they think um, that warming is is caused by greenhouse gases, as we know it really is, um, or whether they're, you know, sort of unwilling to, to accept that at this point. But, um but I think that, you know, the, the idea that um, the climate is changing and that we should be ready for that is something that a lot of people accept. And there are a lot of actions that we can take that are sort of no regrets actions, we call them, things you can do that make sense anyway and will prepare us for, um, for a, a different climate in the future. And, um, and so it's, it's really hard to argue against those sorts of things.
2: Hmm. And I just want to tack on here um, – What we're seeing is a huge divide in the public in Indiana and what their beliefs are about climate change. And it's a long partisan lines like the rest of the country. It's basically any question you ask a Republican group about climate change, you'll receive half the percentage of support than you would for Democrats. So for instance, in Indiana, 80% of Democrats believe that climate change is happening, where around 40% of Republicans report that they believe climate change is happening. Mm -hmm. And again, we see that across a range of measures. And over time at a national level, we're seeing further entrenchment into these views, so declining levels of belief across time uh, among Republicans and an increasing level of belief for Democrats. Mm-hmm. Jesse, how would, you, how would you gauge the um, acceptance of just
0: the premise and the understanding of the premise you know, over the, like the last decade that you've been
3: watching? It's, it's, it's unfortunate. You know, it, it was an issue that was once uh, embraced in a bipartisan way. Uh, You know, as exemplified by the fact that Senator Luger was the one who really inspired Purdue to carry out its first uh, white paper looking at the climate impacts on on our state. And uh, uh, so, yeah, that's that's a marker of how things have changed. And the way that Hoosier Environmental (laughs) Council and other groups have responded to that is to uh, realize that climate change has unfortunately become a loaded term, though it should not be. Uh, and, and rather make different uh, decision makers just again appreciate that there is increasing weather instability and that this weather instability is going to impact big economic sectors like the agricultural sector in Indiana, which is about a $30 billion a year sector and the recreational sector, which is about a $15 billion a year sector. So that this is going to have real practical on-the-ground consequences on our economy.
0: So, Jesse, I have to ask, I mean, it seems like it hadn't been that long ago that climate change was preferred to global warming, right? That,
3: that is true. That <laughs> yeah. is true. You know, and, and again, the irony is just how much this has changed. This was, there was a time when uh, – um, even even senators of a strong ideological nature, like uh, or I'm sorry, elected officials like of a strong uh, ideological nature, like Sarah Palin, uh, were willing to embrace uh, uh, the need to take action on on climate change. And, and yes, you're right. The semantics have changed, where the preference was once on global warming, and then it switched to climate change. But both terms, unfortunately, have a political connotation to them, even though uh, the great work at, at Purdue and at IU shows that, again, there's just so much scientific evidence of its reality here and now.
1: I am going to just jump in on that for a second. There are all kinds of, uh, I think, conspiracy theories out there about what the terminology change was was a result of. And really, in, in the scientific community, the, the idea is just that the climate is changing in more ways than just warming up, so yes there 's global warming on on average the the planet 's temperatures are going up and pretty much everywhere but um, but also precipitation's changing, and extreme events are changing and so it's it 's more complicated than just global warming and uh, that 's really I think the the genesis of that change in the scientific community, mm-hmm.
4: as Bob said at the beginning of the show, we got this idea for the show from um, David Parsons through our Enquire Indiana project, and he did have just a specific question that I want to probably throw to you Jeff. He's asking if you can talk about the conclusions of the recent UN IPCC report looking at the steps necessary to limit global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius versus 2 degrees and the differences in consequences of 1.5 degrees versus 2 degrees.
1: Sure, yeah, absolutely. There's there are a variety of differences and basically it's just that, you know, the effects of climate change everywhere become more acute, and um, for some things, you're you're passing thresholds. Like for coral reefs, you're going from you know probably being able to keep your tropical coral reefs in some state to quite possibly losing your tropical coral reefs uh, entirely. Um, you know, elsewhere for for some uh, low lying uh, island nations or, or communities that are near the near the seas um, at low elevation. It's a question of, you know, how fast are you going to go underwater? How fast are you likely to lose your your community entirely or have to really take strong adaptation options? So, so you know, basically uh, somehow deal with, with rapid sea level rise. that's going to go into your streets more and more over time. Um, and in general, it's the, the poorest people, the poorest communities that are going to have to deal with these problems increasingly over time. Um, but... Basically, it's it's just sort of uh, different rates of this trajectory that we're on, right? And we're going to see. It, well, if we if we continue past one and a half degrees, we're going to see um, more and more consequences of uh, all kinds of these changes. The the um, storms are going to continue to get stronger. They'll be you know just that much more stronger. So you don't know which storm is is going to be extra destructive because of that extra half degree. But you know, the, statistically, there will be more. Storms that are more destructive because of that, for instance and um, and if we want to hold it to one and a half degrees centigrade, which is two point seven degrees Fahrenheit, which means you know here in the middle of Indiana that's maybe uh, five degrees of warming since we're in a, in a the middle of five degrees Fahrenheit of warming since we're in the middle of a continent, um, if we want to hold it to that level, it means a really rapid Reduction of our dependence on fossil fuels, like in the next few decades, essentially we have to go to zero fossil fuel use, and even later in the century, probably um, be somehow capturing carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and storing it. So it depends on technologies that we don't really have anywhere at scale yet. We have the ideas of how this might work, but they haven't; they're not tested and tried and true at, at any, uh, you know, by any stretch of the imagination at this point. So. Uh, I guess the point is holding it to one and a half degrees C of warming globally is going to be extremely difficult It'd take a huge effort. Um, we may not be able to do that. I think it's, you know, honestly, it's unlikely that, that we're going to be able to do that. But the, the point is that uh, anything we do to get closer to that target is going to make the lives of millions of people much, much better than if we don't do anything.
4: So maybe that's why that was mentioned. I know I was really surprised to even hear 1.5 still being mentioned. I thought that ship had kind of sailed. To be to be honest,
1: yeah. So for the Indiana climate change impacts assessment, we didn't even assume that two degrees was uh, something that was achievable. We basically looked at uh, you know something more like a three and a half degree scenario and and a, a more business as usual scenario, um, just because we we thought you know we have to be preparing for for the Futures that are more realistic or more likely to be seen, mm-hmm. um, and that was just our personal sort of assessment as to how fast we 're likely to be be able to get away from fossil fuels uh,
0: we 're not really we 're not going to be apologetic at all that we 're not <coughs> debating whether this is real today or not, but I did want to get, give all three of you the opportunity to cite some statistics that that um, you would give if you were at a cocktail party and somebody came up to you and said. Oh, uh, you guys, this is just a hoax. I mean, what are one or two or three things that you would cite to somebody? And we, uh, yeah, let's just go ahead and start with you, Jeff.
1: Well, I guess I'd say, um, you know, this is something that thousands and thousands of scientists around the world have come up with. There's a huge mountain of scientific evidence that this is happening and caused by people. We can look at thermometer measurements. We can look at glaciers melting. We can look at sea levels rising. These are things that we can actually measure with simple tools like thermometers and rulers. And you know, I mean, it's not—it's—it's it's not necessarily uh, got to be high tech to to see that this is happening. There are plenty of um, sort of skeptical groups that have looked at this from different angles and ended up saying, "Oh, yeah, it is actually warming." There's a, a, a physicist at. at University of California, Berkeley, for instance, who put together a group with uh, support from the Koch brothers, actually, to to look at all these temperature data coming out of the uh, different international uh, climatological organizations and, and found that, yes, in fact, the cl- conclusions that they all had are correct and changed from being a skeptic to someone who was on board with the changes that have happened. Um, and, and, you know, the, the just sort of logistically speaking – there are so many scientists working on this. The, the idea of this whole thing being a grand conspiracy theory, if you sort of understand how the scientific community works, is uh, it's far-fetched at best. Um, and then I guess one other thing is uh, that's worth mentioning is that uh, this body, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is a UN body, they encompass the best scientists from around the world working on this issue. They put out peer-reviewed research, which means that hundreds or even thousands of scientists look at this research that is being summarized in this document and sign off on it. But then after that, the governments from around the world have to sign off on the summary document and agree that this is a good assessment of where we are. And so it's not just scientifically vetted. It's vetted by basically all the countries around the world as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, the idea that that not only all the scientists around the world are making things up, but all the governments around the world are on board with that is uh, really you know, a major stretch of the imagination. Jesse, do you want to add, add anything to that?
3: Well, I think I'd just say briefly that uh, people trust those who they know. And I think that it is such a great fortune for Indiana that you've got the two flagship universities of our state, Purdue University and Indiana University, Uh, I know that's going (laughs) to cause some offense for some people to say that, but (laughs) the two premier research universities in the state, and and you could also talk of Notre Dame, of course, as well, that are investing significant resources in trying to, again, uh, produce very localized research. And I think that because there's such an admiration for these universities, Trying to direct people to, for example, the Purdue Climate Change Research Center's website and making them appreciate that, again, Indiana-grown and, and uh, scientists are at the forefront of this, I think lends a lot of credibility to uh, to the facts.
2: And um, I'd like to add, thinking about the, the local level, a lot of my research deals with trying to understand why people are skeptical of climate change and what we can do about it. And I was uh, working with farmers in southeastern Indiana, and after an interview, a farmer asked me, so is this climate change thing real? What's going on? And I gave a very, these are the scientific facts, evidence, and the extension agent had a much better response and emphasized, look around you, look at what's changed in your local environment. Have you noticed when acorns start to fall? Have you noticed when deer populations come out? And so what I would emphasize, if, if you're potentially skeptical of the scientific body of literature, which as you've mentioned, Jeff, is very robust. Scientists love to argue, so the fact that we've come together on this is very impressive. But if you're skeptical of that, look at your own personal experience. It's pretty clear, I think, that heavy rain events are increasing, that floods are increasing, that temperatures have changed, and that different indicators of these around the states are gro- going on in whatever context you're experiencing them, We have a phone call, so we're going to go to uh, Jim on the phone. Jim?
5: Hi, good morning. Hey. Uh, I was. My question is, uh, have there been any studies about the uh, economic benefits if we were to really uh, go green? Uh, for example, I've got solar panels on my house, and uh, 10 people uh, working on that going up and down the ladders for two days. The, um, uh, I got a plug-in Prius that I use, so most of my town driving is totally on the photons from my roof. So I'm saving a ton of money. So uh, is there any information about what we could actually do to uh, save money and uh, put
3: people to work? Well, I might... uh speak to that. Uh, That's an excellent question. I would just uh, say, first of all, that uh, there's few states in America that are better positioned to be at the forefront of the clean energy economy than Indiana. And that's largely because we still have such a robust manufacturing sector. Our manufacturing sector is, in fact, the largest in America as a percentage of our gross state product. And that manufacturing sector can be pivoted from, say, producing Automobile components to producing components for renewable energy. Uh, for example, uh, companies that once made brakes for cars can now make brakes for wind turbines. And there was a uh, a research study uh, that had concluded uh, in back in 2009 that Indiana was ranked second in America in terms of producing renewable energy component uh, uh, jobs, jobs related to the renewable energy component manufacturing sector
5: okay well thank you for that um yeah the um uh, i want to call out that uh, i got my solar panels through a siren program where they brought together a bunch of households to to do a buy and now they're uh, doing that through the city so uh, the solarize bloomington initiative Mm -hmm. it's it's a a win-win for everybody
0: Mm -hmm. all right thank you very much for calling jim All right, our phone numbers again are 855-0811 in Bloomington. That's 812-855-0811 and toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also follow us at Noon Edition. We're about halfway through the program, so we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back.
6: The Milton Met Studio at IU's Radio TV building. This is noon edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville online at Smithville.com. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUnews.org and on Twitter at WFIU News. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live. And you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org.
0: Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from The Herald Times along with Sarah Whitmire from WFIU and WTIU. We're talking about climate change today. We have Jeff Dukes, professor of forestry and natural resources and biological sciences and the director of the Purdue Climate Change Research Center. Matt Hauser is here in the studio. He's Midwestern Indiana Community Studies Fellow with the Environmental Resilience Institute at IU. And Jesse Carbonda is joining us by phone. He's the Executive Director of the Hoosier Environmental Council. If you have questions or comments, you can give us a call at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also follow us at Noon Edition. Okay.
4: So, Matt, I know you've, you mentioned you've been going around and talking to different stakeholders and people in the community. With so many farmers here, I'm curious how they, if you can sort of generalize, how they're reacting to climate change and their experiences.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This has been the focus of my work for the past couple of mm-hmm. years. Um, so, farmers are being impacted in really dramatic ways by climate change. Uh, Heavy rain events in particular seem to be very prominent in what they're noticing. So, for instance, in a study I did across Michigan, Indiana, and Iowa, 41% of farmers could accurately describe scientific trends in climate change that they had experienced across their lifetime. Uh, Unfortunately, that doesn't seem to lead them to believe that humans cause this action. Um, They are generally conservative and along those lines tend to be fairly skeptical of anthropogenic climate change. They are uh, generally trying to adapt to reduce their vulnerability, uh, their production of crops to these impacts, but often in ways that uh, are economically viable in the short term and in the long term could could increase environmental degradation. So I think it's an area for further research and specifically uh, some conservation policy to be issued at the state level.
4: How so? What are some of the things that that they're doing that could come back to haunt them in the future.
2: Yeah, so I have an in-review study about this at the moment that uh, a number of farmers are experiencing increased nitrogen loss from heavy rain events, mm. and this is an impact that we're expecting generally across the Midwest, that nutrient loss into both waterways and as emission as a greenhouse gas will increase as a result of climate change. For farmers, this is essentially a risk for them as a production. If you don't have sufficient nitrogen in your soils, you'll decrease yield. And they're trying their best to be profitable in a very difficult environment right now. So in 2014, whenever I did this study, a lot of farmers were coming back and increasing their nitrogen application rates in response to loss. And we know that nitrogen rates are positively related to the amount of nitrous oxide emissions, which is a very powerful greenhouse gas. It's the most prominent greenhouse gas in uh, the Midwest agriculture
4: system. Mm. How does Indiana rank in terms of emissions? Are we are we bad, I'm assuming? We have a lot of coal plants here, a lot of farming.
1: I think we're – I don't have the statistic right off the top of my head, but I think we're something like uh, ninth for at least in many of our sectors uh, in terms of per capita emissions. So we're we're pretty high on the per capita emissions scale, and we have so much manufacturing and and steel um, that, that that leads to a lot of emissions too. And And historically, we've relied a lot on coal for our electricity generation. And so, of course – coal is uh sort of the the most greenhouse gas producing way of of generating electricity uh and so yeah we're we are high on the list
2: i, I hadn't seen anything indiana specific but the statistic i know off the top of my head is that the average individual midwesterner releases about 22 percent more emissions than the average individual across the country
0: i want to ask jesse carbonda from the who's your environmental council to weigh in on this too
3: Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, Yes, we've tracked this fairly carefully over the years, and we know that Indiana has had the highest carbon footprint in the industrial Midwest Mm -hmm. on a per capita basis for for the reasons that have already been mentioned. You know, I did want to briefly... uh, speak to this issue of agriculture uh, in the sense that, you know, I, I know a lot of listeners when they uh, listen in on conversations on climate change can get rather depressed. And I think that one key message I want to relay is that uh, there, we have the policy infrastructure in place to respond to climate change here in Indiana. Uh, we just have to, to scale that up. Uh, So, for example, with respect to farmers and the runoff that they're experiencing because of increased flooding, you know, we'd like to make sure that there's an adequate amount of funding for the Clean Water Indiana program at the the state level, which provides grants to, to farmers to put up buffer strips along their waterways and Uh, try to contain that kind of chemical runoff. So, you know, policymakers, and we have the legislative session coming up in just a few months, uh, have a real uh, ability to, again, build off of existing programs to help uh, manage the effects of climate change.
0: We have two phone calls. Let's go to Roger on the phone. Roger?
7: Yes. um, uh, Regarding reduced vulnerability, Um, One of the things that was really shocking in the recent hurricane was the number of hospitals that had to be completely evacuated along the Florida coast, even though they've known for years uh, what the standards ought to be for building a hospital. Uh, We're building a hospital here now, and it brought to mind the Martinsville flood, and there will surely be floods of that magnitude within the years of use of the IU hospital here. And I'm thinking about the facilities for aging people or disabled people, there was certainly unreported mortality. You can't help it when you move people from hospital to hospital. So the question is, among all the dozens of people that are working on this, have you been able to formulate policy for uh, plan commission, local plan commissions to be sure that vulnerable people will not have to be moved whenever the rain comes? In Bloomington and other Indiana cities, you're
0: talking about building standards,
7: right? Building standards. Regulations. I look at that big hole out there, and I'm just hoping that (laughs) they don't have to put any power equipment or anything down in too low in the hole, um, or IU Hospital, or it'll flood when that happens. Okay.
1: Well, I can say uh, that I've been talking with groups around the state about our our results and. the, that includes uh, engineers at times, and and they are very interested in our results and how precipitation is changing and how they can design to it in the future. And the groups that I've spoken to, at least, have been pretty unsure as to whether the standards that they're using to, to build actually take into account the changes that have already happened in precipitation in Indiana, let alone uh, future projections. So my sense is that in general... Uh, they are not using future projections uh, for the the buildings that they're making now, but um, but I'm not positive on that. And, and you know, this is from a group of civil engineers in particular that I'm thinking of. So um, so it could be different. But this is this is something we're trying to um, facilitate around the state is conversations about exactly these sorts of issues because we think this is uh, really important to, to take these things into account. And, and we're doing that as. Part of sort of the dissemination of the Indiana Climate Change Impacts Assessment, but also the the team here at the Environmental Resilience Institute is going out around the state, talking to mayors in particular, and and uh, making sure that they are trying to take these changes into account as well.
2: And that, and that's what I wanted to mention specifically. Our implementation manager at the Environmental Resilience Institute, Andrea Webster, has been going out and able to talk to conservative mayors, people in skeptical areas, and sp- Offer them specific recommendations about this might be what can help your area deal with the effects of climate change. So I think while maybe we're not necessarily there yet, we're getting there. And she has seen really wonderful results that people have been very open to a resilience approach to climate change, reducing vulnerability, even if they're not overly concerned about emissions. Okay. I appreciate that coordination. Thank
0: you. I just want to follow up quickly. What have you heard from developers we're going to have to meet these more stringent standards. Has there been pushback to that, or has, have you gotten that far? Yeah.
1: So we haven't. Uh, we haven't talked to groups of developers yet. There's a real estate group that I'm hoping we can uh, we can communicate with sometime in the future. They're interested in having having more information from us, but we haven't we haven't had an extensive conversation with them yet. But I will say to you know to anyone listening who's interested in understanding more what the projections are, um, the climate change impacts assessment is. Ongoing, but we have six reports that are already available online at indianaclimate.org. So they're they're geared for the public. Uh, the results are hopefully in a relatively easy to comprehend format, and um, we really encourage you to to check them out uh, at, at indianaclimate.org.
0: We have another caller on the line, and Jesse, we're going to let you go first with this one. Uh, Steve is on the line. Steve,
8: yeah, I wondered if your panelists had an opinion on the city's uh, recent. I would call promotion of pollution, because they're planning on converting one-way streets in Bloomington to two-way, and all the studies and data show that when you do that, you increase pollution considerably. And I wondered why the city, I'm kind of puzzled why the city's trying to do that, because idling cars and the longer it takes a car to get to destination means more pollution. So are you planning on maybe uh, approaching that problem and suggesting the city rethink such a regressive policy, or would you... All right. Well,
0: let me, let me ask Jesse. You can kind of broaden it out. You don't need to be specific to the city of Bloomington, but about you know traffic pollution in cars, and you know what what kind of things can be done there.
3: Yeah, I I appreciate the question. You know, we we are a statewide organization, and we tend to focus on state level public policy. So I haven't seen the research of uh pollution patterns of uh, one-way versus two-way but i appreciate that and we'll look into it uh... you know more generally i think we have to change the paradigm in how we fund transportation in the state about 96 cents out of every dollar, uh, that taxpayers spend on transportation in Indiana goes to, uh, to roads. And, uh, we are seeing trends, uh, based, uh, among, uh, patterns of millennials as well as, uh, folks that are heading into retirement that there's a great need for, um, transportation alternatives like mass transit and uh, greenways and bikeways. And uh, that's certainly that kind of innovation is happening at a local level where you see Indianapolis uh, uh, in the midst of doubling the, the size of its, uh, uh, trans, uh, its alternative approaches, its mass transit approaches, and it's going to have the nation's first all-electric bus rapid transit line. And, uh, you know, uh, several cities are investing in trails. So that's a good trend from the vantage point of health and quality of life, but also from the vantage point of greenhouse gas emissions, uh, with transportation being the second largest source of, of those emissions.
0: Do you two have any, any thoughts about that one-way versus two-way? Have you seen any research on that?
1: I haven't seen research on that. I know that there are uh, many advocates of roundabouts in this state for keeping traffic flowing, and uh, the mayor of Carmel, Jim Brainerd, is a particular uh, advocate of that. But I, the one-way versus two-way, I haven't seen.
2: No, I would just emphasize, uh, like Jesse said, we need to probably reduce our use of individual vehicles totally. Uh, if you can find ways to commute either in carpool lanes, uh, in with buses, or by foot or by bike, that's, that's really the route we should be trying to pursue. Okay. Thank you, Steve. We appreciate your call.
0: Our phone numbers again are 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also... Follow us on Twitter. You can get to us at Noon Edition.
4: Can you talk a little bit, Matt, and, and maybe all of you will want to chime in on this, but just how individual communities and just me as a person, how, how I might be impacted by climate change here in Indiana?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we know the number one health risk for Indiana residents and Midwestern residents generally from climate change is increased uh, occurrence of heat waves. Uh, We're expecting, you might be able to know know the specific number here, but a a large increase in the number of days that will be over 95 degrees in the summer. And it's projected by, for instance, 2,100 that 2,000 additional deaths could occur because of heat waves in Chicago alone. Uh, So we need to take individual-level household uh, actions to ensure that we're prepared for that, and that means uh, finding ways to cool your home in sustainable ways. So in addition to air conditioning, using fans, planting shade trees, things like that. But we also need to use community-level approaches, uh, policies that will have heat outreach uh, to warn citizens about the possible occurrence of heat waves and be able to get at the most at-risk older adults to cooling centers that are publicly open.
1: I'll add to that just the, the findings that we have from the Climate Change Impacts Assessment that they vary for different parts of the state. Of course, it's hotter in the south than the north in Indiana. But historically, in the southern part of the state, we've had about seven days of temperatures above 95 degrees each year. And by mid-century, we're expecting that to be more like seven weeks of temperatures above 95 degrees each year. So uh, it depends a little bit on the emissions trajectory we're on, but, but it's going to be relatively close to that one way or the other. So that means we really need to be serious about preparing for these these potential health consequences.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to speak to another dimension of kind of real-world, on-the-ground impacts of climate change, and that is uh, uh, the topic of flooding and water quality. And uh, you know, we, we see a hunger as we do workshops across the state of people wanting to recreate along the river, and certainly one trend that's going to make that more likely is the fact that we're seeing significant upgrades in wastewater infrastructure across uh, the state. Um, which will certainly reduce, uh, bacterial contamination that is one of the deterrents for recreating along our rivers. But what we're seeing, uh, in, in other states, for example, in North Carolina with, uh, Hurricane Florence is increased vulnerability, uh, to waterways such as the, uh, pollution of coal ash lagoons, uh, breaking apart and, uh, contaminating a couple of rivers and a number of, uh, uh, factory farm manure dumps that have breached and have also contaminated waterways so uh, as we think about managing uh, climate change and again thinking about how it affects uh, people's day-to-day lives we've got to be thinking about how do we shore up uh, and defend our our waterways from these huge risks for which in indiana they are major with indiana having more coal ash dumps and any other state in the country and having a very high density of uh, factory farm uh, pits, waste pits.
0: We're going to go to the phones again. We have Wendy on the line. Wendy?
8: Hi. um, This is a great segue to my question. Um, Given Indiana's heavy use of coal, I want to know, is it possible to use coal without the particulate contaminating our water, air, and lungs? And assuming that it's not, how do we get Indiana and IU to wean ourselves off of coal?
2: Who wants to try that one? I'll let I'll let you take the the science of
1: coal first. Yeah. <laughs> well, so it's, I'm not a, a sort of coal scientist by any means, or uh, you know that's not my my main area. But uh, you know there are ways of certainly making the emissions from uh, coal fired power plants cleaner. Uh, there 's you know you 're still going to have uh the the residue essentially the ash to deal with one one way or the other, um, and any way that you use to make that uh, emissions cleaner is going to increase the price of the energy that is generated by that plant, and you know those plants already are not uh economically uh, Basically, they're, they're losers economically at this point already. So as you try to clean them up, they, the economics just gets worse and worse. So, um, you know, really at this point, frankly, renewables are, are a much, much better way to go. It, maybe in some places, natural gas, too. But but uh, I, if you, I don't know if you, you noticed, but the one of the major uh, electricity generating Companies in the northern part of the state has uh, done an analysis and decided that they are going to rapidly shift away from coal uh, over the next ten years, particularly over the next five years, and towards renewables uh, because it's it just makes economic sense for their customers. Um, so I, you know, I think you can you can strategize ways to make the emissions from coal-fired power plants cleaner, but doing that in a way that's economically realistic is probably impossible.
2: I, What we see at a national level on top of this is very high levels of support for wind and solar energy. Ninety percent of Americans believe that we should increase our use of these energy techniques. The problem is most Americans don't want them in their backyard. They don't want to see wind turbines. So I think part of the solution is changing our views, our expectations, and being more accepting of the, the changes that will need to be made to get more widespread use of green energy.
4: Well, and, and to play devil's advocate, isn't part of that also? You know, when you have solar panels or when you have turbines, that is dependent on it being sunny, that is dependent on the wind, whereas coal is readily available here, and, and there has been a lot done to make it cleaner in terms of the particulate matter.
3: Jesse, do you want to respond to that? Well, I think that, um, as Jeff said, uh, you know, the, the trade off for cleaning uh, the air. Uh, from these coal plants is that you create a, a, a considerable more amount of coal ash, and we have no uh, viable. Um, we have strategies for how do we deal with that coal ash, but it's going to be incredibly expensive. I mean, we're we're basically going to have to excavate millions and millions of tons of coal ash that are generally located in or near floodplains and move those to landfills, which will be a, a massive enterprise. So, uh, coal has no. Um, viable path forward. It's being beaten by natural gas now. Uh, it's being beaten by renewable energy in many different markets across the country. And again, um, you know, so-called clean coal technologies are problematic in both the perspective of coal ash as well as greenhouse gas emissions, which is you have no um, you have no scalable way of sequestering the greenhouse gas emissions coming from those coal plants. So coal has no future, um, just from a pure market perspective, and uh, and the economics for renewables are becoming incredibly compelling uh, for utility scale solar plants. They've gone down by eighty six percent in costs between two thousand nine and two thousand eighteen, and there's just been an cr- incredible uh, progress made in the commercialization of battery technologies. So any worries about uh, uh, the uh, the issue of uh, of uh, you know uh, how solar can can kind of replace coal are, are going to be solved by the storage issue.
0: We have about 10 minutes to go, so if you want to give us a call, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or one 285 9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also tweet us at Noon Edition.
4: In talking about industrial pollution and some of the, the major things that happen on big farms, I'm just wondering how difficult is it to have these conversations with people about little things they can do when it seems pretty small in the the grand big picture of things because we don't get these big plate things on board. How likely are we to put a dent in this? I, I think it
2: can be a difficult conversation and it's very easy to feel like your actions don't matter. But uh, I think they do. I mean, it's pretty clear that We see that if people take choice, if they make choices at the household level to reduce their energy use, we could reduce emissions by 11% across the board. It's one of the biggest sectors. So if you make an individual choice, you can have an impact. But I want to emphasize that we can't do it alone. It needs to have community, state, and federal level policy support to help make some of these choices more easy to do within a short-term economic window. We need to make things affordable. We need to make green energy something that is more of an option and federally supported. And for farmers, like I said, we need to ensure that they can have access to all the different conservation practices that they can use and that it's profitable, particularly in a very tough corn and soy market right now.
3: No, so I also... I want to briefly relate how the individual can affect the public policy. So, for example, you might have someone in your neighborhood who installs solar on their rooftop, and then uh, a lawmaker gets the idea of installing uh, solar on his or her rooftop, and then all of a sudden he or she begins to have a different change of mindset about solar energy as a technology in general, and that makes him or her sympathetic to potentially um, incentives for solar energy in terms of public policy.
0: Uh, i don 't I know we don 't have time to wait for this, but is there hope in the next generation uh, is this Is there a generational shift toward younger people who are more concerned about the environment
1: Well teaching a lot of university students up at Purdue, I can say it seems sure seems like it from my perspective yeah there, there are um, students are generally pretty concerned about this this issue i i don 't see in the classes I teach and sure the students may be um, you know, sort of biased towards these issues in the classes that I teach a bit, but but I see, um, you know, more than ninety five percent sort of agreement that uh, that we need to do something about climate change, that it's caused by people, and um, and, and that you know they've got to um, be contributing to the to the solution in in some way, and so uh, so it's really encouraging to see the the students coming through at Purdue and and um, how they're sort of clear-eyed about the problem and and want to take it on.
0: Mm-hmm. We have another phone call. Let's go to Bob on the line. Bob?
8: Uh, hi. My name is Bob Eckert. And although I'm a staunch supporter of renewables and sustainables as sources of energy for Indiana, and there are places where it's being implemented, I think you mentioned, up north and down south, um, where we have such a dependence on coal, that's clearly something we need to phase out yet uh, some renewables may not work in some of the areas in southern Indiana. And my point being that um, nuclear technology has evolved a tremendous amount since the days of Three Mile Island and the giant um, one-plant-fits-all uh, mega megawatt, super-megawatt producing facilities. Um, there are uh, smaller nuclear plants, which is the tact that france has used to provide a lot of their power where the uh amount of power produced and the safety of those plants is extremely high because they are not large and uh i'm just curious whether that could be a solution for parts uh parts of the power generation system that simply aren't amenable to um to the renewables or sustainables as we move away from coal thank you Jesse, how
0: about uh, where's nuclear fall in the Hoosier Environmental Council's agenda?
3: Uh, Well, uh, let let me respond to that in a couple of different ways. One is to say that uh, according to the National Renewable Energy Lab, there's no part of our state that has a better solar energy potential than southern Indiana. And number two, uh, we've seen some utility-scale solar plants come up in southern Indiana Uh, and in particular in some areas that are economically facing distress like Dale, Indiana uh, that are putting in Solar parks at the megawatt level. So I think I'll answer this question about nuclear by simply saying that I don't see the economics bearing out. That yes, I understand that the solar incidence is going to be varied across Indiana, with some regions benefiting more than others. But I just don't see the economics working well for nuclear on a megawatt hour basis compared to uh, renewable energy. So and I, think- I would like to. I I would like to
8: say in response to that there has to be some technological mechanism for providing um, <coughs> solar power when the sun is not shining down on us or the wind is not of a sufficient velocity to produce the amount of energy we need. How do you, uh, how do you propose, what do you propose as the technological fix for that if we don't uh, um, have some form of continuous 24-7 uh, energy source?
3: Yeah, I mean, that's a very legitimate question, and I think I would answer that by saying that grids such as those in Iowa have figured out how do you, at a very aggressive level, integrate intermediate energy sources, and they've not had reliability issues. Iowa gets more than 30 percent of its electricity from renewable energy, and its electricity prices – are lower than those in Indiana so they've figured out how do you integrate this intermediate resource and that's even in the absence of storage technology but storage technology prices have gone down significantly over the last 10 to 15 years and again I see that playing we see that at Hoosier Environmental Council playing a very viable role uh, does that rely understand. on lithium technology I'm sorry let
0: let, let me me go to Jeff I think Jeff had something he wanted to to add to this
1: well I just uh, I just wanted to say that not only are we having problems with nuclear that are economic and there's no no clear path to sort of the economically viable um, nuclear dominated future right now but also political I, I think it's Basically there are two huge stumbling blocks for nuclear right now, and while the technology may be there without massive subsidies it uh, 's going to be really tough to to get it implemented in in any uh, meaningful way in the u s right now and, and Renewables are getting so much cheaper so fast like like Jesse said, as our batteries, yeah, using lithium technologies that that, um, that you know that seems like a more politically viable path to the future right now than the than nuclear
8: thanks for your call Bob yeah, We're lithium, to- lithium is the most uh, dangerous of those
0: technologies currently. We're going to have to say, hi, say goodbye to Bob because we are about out of time. I want to give each of you the opportunity to um, sort of give Hoosiers one last thing they might be able to do or something they should be concerned about going forward
1: through the research
0: that you know about.
1: So, Jeff? So there are... Um I guess broadly, it depends on the person. There are many things that we need to be doing to be preparing, basically, for the changes that are underway. And I think the first thing is just understanding how the climate is changing, how it's projected to, to change in the future, and how that may affect you on a variety of levels. Whether you're a farmer, whether you're uh, working in the healthcare industry, uh, whatever you happen to be doing, um, you know, thinking about what those changes might mean for you is is really important. And and then thinking about you know how we can address them as a society too. I think those are two important perspectives to be keeping in mind going forward.
2: Okay, Ben? I would emphasize, um, in addition to individual actions and being concerned, go out and vote. If you're concerned about this issue, find the politicians that represent your feelings in the Midwest, in Indiana, Mm -hmm. and ensure that they're going to represent our needs because individual actions matter, like I said, but we also need community and state-level support. 20 seconds, Jesse.
3: Okay. Well, I hope that people will come to our annual event, greeting the State House, on Saturday, November 17th. It's going to be very focused on climate solutions, both how uh, we can get communities to be protected from risks from coal ash and from factory farms, and also solutions such as mass transit, uh, renewable energy, and
0: uh, all right. sustainable agriculture. Hey, thanks a lot. I want to thank all of our guests today, Jeff Dukes, Matt Hauser, and Jesse Carbanda. For Patrick McGurr, Mike Pashkash, and my co-host, Sarah Whitmire, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening.
6: Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber
0: Internet, streaming TV, home security and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.